Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to be with you and have you with us. Glad to see that you aren't all fiested out. You actually came to church on Sunday morning. And uh, for those of you that are maybe just visiting this Sunday or, uh, or have mis- or missed last Sunday, we're in the book of Ruth. Uh, so go ahead and turn there, book of Ruth, short book of the, of the Old Testament. It's right after Judges, right before 1 Samuel. And we are going through that one chapter at a time for about a month. It'll, it's a, a really short series, but a really good one. Ruth is a story of redemption. As you're turning there, I'll just give you a, a little catch up on chapter one if you missed it. It's pretty straightforward, pretty simple. Ruth belongs to a family, uh, well I should start at the beginning. Uh, there's a family once upon a time. Elimelech uh, was the patriarch, the, the father and the, hu- or excuse me, the husband had a wife named Naomi. They had sons. Those sons, uh, along with the family, moved to Moab because of famine in Bethlehem. Uh, they took some wives, that is Orpah uh, uh, and Ruth, two uh, foreign women from the land of Moab. And in the course of about five verses, everything goes wrong. A perfect disaster, a perfect storm. Uh, where Elimelech, the, the fa- uh, excuse me, the husband and both sons die, leaving these women in a very patriarchal society, uh, vulnerable to just about everything. And so the entire book opens with this situation, just utter despair, utter desperation, likely a trajectory into poverty and possibly other forms of danger. That's how this book opens, but it leaves you at the end of chapter one with a glimmer of hope as this uh, as food starts to come back to Bethlehem, Naomi takes her daughters uh, and makes their way back to Bethlehem. Orpah decides to go back to Moab. Ruth decides to go with Naomi, and she claims Naomi's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it leaves us with just a little bit of hope, a little glimmer of hope, just, just right in front of us, like a carrot just dangled in front of us, a glimmer of hope, and it leaves us there, launching us into chapter two, and that's where we pick up the story. The point of chapter one was, was really God being present and faithful, even when you don't see it, you don't sense it, you don't feel it, even when it's invisible. God is working, even in your trials, even in your suffering, even in your discouragement. He's working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose and for his eternal glory, and so we saw that in chapter one, that even when things look bleak, even when life throws you a curveball, God is working through history in your life to turn things around, even when it doesn't seem like he's doing that. And it leaves us with a, a, that glimpse of hope as we launch into chapter two. What I'm gonna do right now is uh, kind of like what we did last week, just read a section at a time until we get through it. And then we'll see a few other things emerge to the top as we go through the story of Ruth story of redemption. So if you're there, Ruth chapter two, I'm just gonna start reading uh, the first eight verses and we'll take it from there. Ruth chapter two, verse one through eight. It said, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. 
And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. And Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite in char- uh, the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a, a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Verse nine, let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all of us gather before you in front of your word. We gather before you now, foreigners, all of us, foreign to the kingdom of God, foreign to the way of God, and yet grafted in by the grace of God. And we pray that as, uh, as your word is opened, so our ears would be opened, unstopped. Our spiritual eyes would be able to see and our hearts would pump with the anticipation and excitement of a God who saves the least of these. I pray that your word, which is powerful for the destruction of fortresses, for the sanctification of believers, for the conversion of pagans, for the renewal of all things, I pray that your word would have its way, that it would not go forth without any purpose, but it would accomplish what you have decided for it to do. I just want to ask, Lord, that as we read your word, as we study your word, as we worship because of your word, we would leave here, Lord, not, not tickled in the ears by a lecture or an arrangement of points or a couple one-liners, or even the word itself, but we would be changed. I pray that we would be convicted, and I pray that we would leave this place, our hearts just a little more passionate, a little bit more concerned with the things that your heart is. Pray that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours, and that you would show us the way. In Jesus' name, amen. The theologian and pastor of the uh, Redeemer in New York City, Timothy Keller, once uh, put love this way. He said, the Bible primarily measures love not by what you are able to receive from somebody else, but what you are willing to give to somebody else. Love is primarily measured in the Bible not by what you are able to get, but what you are willing to give. This is the type of love that you see all throughout the Old Testament and later in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it comes up as the uh, the Hebrew word chesed. Every time you look at an instance of God's covenant love, it's that chesed love, that very thing that Timothy Keller explains so pithily. 
In fact, that word chesed, which translates into love, is so robust and so deep and so multifaceted that there's not really a single word that can be used to describe the, the richness of God's countenance towards us. Love works, loyalty works, faithfulness works, kindness works. There are just so many different attributes and good things about God wrapped up in a single word that we sometimes translate kindness or love, chesed. It's that deep love of God. And it can be best defined, if you want to shorten the definition as much as possible, the working definition, as the ability to give more so than to receive. Now, if we were to measure God's love According to that standard, we would have to say that if God's love or if love that God approves of is measured primarily not by what we can get from other people, but what we can give to other people, it goes without saying that the best, most vivid, most outlandish and brazen forms of love then would be those that are shown to the poor. If love can best be defined as giving without the intention of receiving, then it would make sense to find that chesed love being shown most of all, most vividly to the poor who can give you nothing in return. Ruth chapter two is about loving the poor. Ruth chapter two is about loving the poor and I think we can navigate it in three different ways, three different points, if this makes it easier for you to navigate it with me. Ruth chapter two talks about God's love for the poor. It then talks about what that love for the poor looks like, tangible expressions of love. And it ends with what it might mean for people who take God seriously. So that's what I wanna talk about today from Ruth chapter two. God's love for the poor It all starts, the bulk and majority of everything we're gonna talk about leaps off the page from the first four or five verses. Now I just want you to, I'm just gonna, for the next five verses, I'm just gonna take it verse at a time, verse by verse. Says Naomi, her mother, uh, excuse me, that's chapter three, (laughs) chapter two. Naomi had a relative of her husband a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. I just want you to take that, put it in the, on the shelf of your mind for a second. We'll come back to it later. A worthy man, uh, same, same uh, word that's used to describe Ruth later. In this case, it's speaking about his high rank, his social stature, probably his wealth. A guy who's up there with class and privilege and influence. It immediately launches us, this bleak story launches us into the introduction of good old Boaz, Right? And then it calls him a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Now here's something you have to know about Israel in that time period. There are three ways of interpreting a community in Israel. You had a family, right? Which was your brothers, your sisters, your uh, uncles maybe, your, your son, your daughter, your dad, that sort of thing. Immediate biological family, that's your family. Above that, more broadly speaking, is a clan that is a grouping of families that are kind of close-knit together, and then uh, even more broadly than that are tribes, 
12 tribes of Israel, right? You have the tribe of Dan, you have the tribe of, uh, uh, tribe of uh, Reuben, and uh, so on and so forth. Those are the three ways of understanding how family and community worked. You had family, you had the clans, you had the tribes. Now, the clan was that unit that was the most important to you. If you wanted well-being, if you wanted security, if you wanted to, to know uh, that the next 10 years of your life were going to amount to something and that you weren't just going to drop off the face of the earth into poverty or starvation, the, the clan itself was what was going to watch after you. It wasn't just your family, but it was an immediate circle of families, many of which were obligated by God's law to watch out for the other families in the clan. So it starts off with that way. Just keep that in the top of your mind, the clan of Elimelech. Same clan as Ruth and Naomi and so on. Verse two. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Naomi said, go my daughter. She set out and went, gleaned in the field after the reapers and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. The first few verses of Ruth chapter two tell us two things about God. It actually doesn't mention God once, but it's implicitly referring to uh, to God in a variety of ways. I would say it's referring to his providence and it's referring to his compassion. Here's what I mean by providence. The author of Ruth is just, just, just hurting to get to Ruth chapter two. And he's actually hurting to get to Ruth chapter three when it actually explodes in just a a series of romance. But the author of Ruth is just really trying to get you to see God at work behind the scenes. Look at some of the things that he brings up. Ruth just happened to choose the particular clan that mattered the most. Of all the clans in all the fields that she could have chosen, she chose the one that was owned by a guy who was of the clan of Elimelech, the very person who could help her if she needed it. And the original language actually says she uh, chanced by chance to go into the field of uh, Boaz, the uh, of the clan of Elimelech. If we were to use our own contemporary language, we might say, and just by, uh, just by some mad luck, Ruth stumbled upon the right guy. Only, if you, could, if you could just envision the author of Ruth writing this, he's just like winking at you, right? So, and just by chance, she just happened to walk into the right field. When you're reading the Old Testament, especially in historical narrative stories, uh, one of the literary devices of the authors is to give you a glimpse into a particular character by showing you through their first words. First words usually reveal something about that person's character. And Boaz speaks up and says, what? The Lord be with you to his workers. And they respond, the Lord bless you. And so immediately we see it's not just Boaz of the clan of Elimelech, but it's a God-fearing person, a God-fearing Hebrew of the clan of Elimelech. And it just gets deeper and deeper. Finally, of all the days for Boaz to show up. It says in verse, at the end of verse four, he just kind of rolls up on the scene as Ruth does. And so I want you to envision this picture that uh, the author of Ruth is trying to weave together to get your attention about the providence of God. Ruth, whose life was just uh, on the verge of destruction, no hope on the planet, goes out to reap uh, in the fields at the, uh, at the beginning of a barley harvest, hoping to maybe just catch a break. 
And in the first scene on chapter two, we see that she just happened to stumble into a field owned by someone from her family. She just happened to stumble into a field of a guy that loved the same God as her. She just happened to be there on the same day that Boaz strolls in, and guess what? He notices her. Of all the other people uh, reaping the fields on that day, Boaz notices Ruth. In other words, there's no accidents. There's no accidents in the economy of God. Even the ones that we think are accidents, even the ones that we uh, don't understand, even when we, we wouldn't even be able to tell the difference, there's no accidents in God's economy. There's only divine appointments. All things that God is using and working to get you from point A to point B in his sovereign plan. Now in this case, it's a divine appointment between two people, Boaz and Ruth. Ruth, an impoverished, foreign, despised widow. God isn't just provident because he wants to thrill us with his ability to orchestrate history. But in this case, he moves history. He orchestrates things and people and stuff and events and situations. In this case, to show compassion. And in this case, to show compassion on a very poor person. This isn't just providence, but it's compassion. Even the fact that Ruth is gleaning refers to a system that God himself put in place all the way back in the Torah, in the first five books of the Old Testament, in place to protect and feed the poor. I wanna quote you one of these rules in Leviticus chapter 19, verse nine through 10. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. In other words, those who have plenty, those who are able to take care of themselves, don't use it all on yourself, but leave some for those who don't have enough. This is what Boaz is thinking of when he does the same for Ruth. It was the law of God, and we see this type of deep, loving care and compassion for those who are poor all over the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among you. We might say he loves the immigrant dwelling among you, giving them food and clothing. Isaiah 41, verse 17, when the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them, and so on and so forth. All of these verses popping to the front, uh, uh, to the top of scripture, sharing the same point that we see emerge from Ruth chapter two, God champions the poor. And I don't just mean the spiritually poor, the, the poor in spirit. I also mean the economically poor, the relationally poor. God is a champion for those who have no champion. And we see all of this, and this is the beauty of a story. We see all of that reflected in an actual person. In Boaz, God's loving concern for the poor. So we don't just get a rule, we don't just get a description, we don't just get an esoteric, you know, kind of a lofty mission statement for what God thinks. We get tangible, gritty, 
examples of what God's has said love is for those who are unloved. Let me read the rest of it, and I'll just read from verse eight all the way on. It says, and Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink where, uh, what, when the young men have drawn. And then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband have been fully told to me. And how you let your father and mother in your native land and came, uh, came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and don't reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for, their, uh, leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living and the dead. Naomi also said to her, that man is a close relative of ours. He's one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, <laughs> that you go out with his, his young women, lest in any field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. What an incredible picture by the author of Ruth depicting what's happening. He's just pulling us into this scene. Like we get a glimpse of Boaz, and the more we know of Boaz, the more we start to like him, right? And by the time we get to the end of, ch uh, of the chapter, I actually hate how chapter two ends because it leaves you wanting more. Like you get these two people, Ruth and Boaz, and they notice each other, and he's helping her, and she's just beside herself, and she's been lonely and uh, destitute all of this time, and you're just, this anticipation is building in the store, and you're like, yeah, 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 and it ends with just the worst line ever. She lived with her mother-in-law, and you're like, no! <laughs> That's just the author trying to suck you into chapter three where you will get everything you've ever wanted in a story. But for now, we get a few things. One, we get that God really loves the poor. 
We also get, and we're going to get in the, in, in the passages that we just read, what that love actually looks like. Boaz, a man of high social standing, we could say that this was a guy with power, with clout, with influence, with a certain amount of privilege, who sees out of everybody on his field the person without any of those things. It's as though his eyes were open to the person that needed him the most, He saw, you have to imagine, so many different people working in his fields and a field among many fields and he gets there and he sees Ruth and he doesn't just see a Moabite, he looks beyond her socioeconomical status and begins to manifest God's heart to her within a few different sentences. He doesn't just give her a handout, he doesn't just condescendingly pat her on the back, he causes her to come alive. He sees things in her that nobody else up until this point saw. For example, he begins to dignify her. Boaz, this is the first time we see Ruth called this, but Boaz calls her my daughter instead of my servant or any other derogatory term that an Israelite might wish to call a Moabite. Remember, these were incredibly hostile enemies back at that time. He begins the conversation first by dignifying her, calling her his daughter, an incredible, esteemed, and respectful way to refer to a woman of perhaps equal or similar standing. Immediately, Boaz breaks down economic and ethnic barriers. Could have been very easy if she would have walked into another field that day to be uh, at the butt end of a lot of racial prejudice. Boaz kills that, tears down economic, ethnic barriers by referring to in a respectful way. He also then, at the end of verse nine, tells her to go and drink water that his men drew. Two things happening here. Women were usually the ones that drew water for the men to drink, and the foreigners were the ones who drew water for the Israelites to drink. He immediately flips this around. I could, you could imagine his workers' faces, their jaws dropping to the floor like, what? Boaz then commands his workers at the, end, uh, at the end of the same verse, verse nine, not to touch Ruth. He gives her a certain amount of protection in the fields. This could have been a very dangerous place for a woman to work by herself. Way more dangerous for a foreigner to work. You might call this the first anti-sexual harassment policy in history. He tells his men, don't touch her. Don't mess with her. Don't insult her. Let her be. In fact, I want you to help her and see her to be successful. Here's the, here's the significance of some of the things that Boaz is doing. Now, this is a long time ago, but some of the things are eerily universal. There's a book that came out quite a while ago on ministering to the poor called When Helping Hurts. And in that, there was a story by the authors told of, uh, I think it was, I wanna say after the end of World War II when a series of European countries were were, uh, decimated in a variety of ways, including economically, the World Bank was formed to feed uh, capital and other funds and resources into some of those countries, France, Germany, all of that stuff. And it helped. 
stimulate their economy and get them back on their feet. And so World Bank had this other idea. Well, if it worked for these other uh, uh, developed post-World War II European countries, maybe it can work for you know, Zimbabwe and uh, other places in Africa and uh, poor places in Asia and some, uh, stuff like that. And so they began to feed cash and capital and resources into poor countries, and it didn't work. In fact, the problems remain there. Uh, in some instances, it actually made it worse, and uh, people at World Bank asked themselves, what was the problem? They began to, for the first time, you know, up until this point, it was a bunch of rich people uh, getting together and brainstorming, how can we help the poor? And then at some point, they began to ask themselves, you know, maybe we should ask the poor what it's like to be poor. In fact, they didn't even have a working definition of poverty, so they surveyed 60,000 impoverished people all around the world and just began to ask them, what is poverty? If I were to ask you that question, what would you say? Here's what I would say, because I asked myself the same question before I read the book, and I said things like, well, no money, no resources, homeless, uh, no friends, something of that nature, all very material, material. I was really reading this question through a materialistic, consumeristic lens. It's all about money and resources. Now, don't get me wrong, that certainly plays into it. But those 60,000 people that World Bank interviewed all had things to say. It included that. But they also went deeper. It was things like embarrassment, isolation, shame. There were stories being told of uh, missionaries and other nonprofit organizations coming in, you know, at Christmas to bring a bunch of presents to kids in uh, uh, places where there's uh, projects, housing projects, and the very, uh, the very poor, how the kids would just be beaming and the, the mothers would just be ecstatic and they begin to ask themselves, where are all the dads? Well, it turns out that the dads, knowing that these rich uh, North American people were coming in and giving their kids presents, were so ashamed that they could not do the same for their kids, that they, they, they couldn't bear to be there. And so these are some of the things that some of the, the most poor in the world would bring up, including all of that other stuff that we would assume deeper stuff of the heart. A sense of worthlessness, a sense of shame, embarrassment, loneliness. No desire to carry on, no hope for the future. And so you see the significance of Boaz coming to a very poor person and saying, you're worthwhile. I want you to come and join me, drink the water that my men have drawn. I want you to work in this field. I'll make sure no one hurts you. You are, you are worthy. He also goes on to accept Ruth in verse 14 by inviting her to his table. In the ancient Middle East, to eat at someone's table was the deepest and most profound way to show them that they're accepted by you. You eat with somebody, they're accepted. You're their friend. There's still a sense of that today, I think. When you eat with someone, you invite them over. I've accepted you, table fellowship. In verse 17, we see that Boaz doesn't just stop with those things, but he actually financially supports, although he empowers her to work for that financial stability. Look at what he does. In verse, six, uh, in verse uh, 17, 
This is unbelievable. So she gleaned in the field until evening. <laughs> he tells his workers in verse 15, uh, 16, pull out some of the bundles for her. Don't bother her. Actually, pull out some of the bundles that you pulled and, and leave them on the ground for her to glean and don't rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. If you've never heard of an ephah before, you know, uh, what's wrong with you? No, just kidding. <laughs> comes from another word in Hebrew which refers to donkeys because it is the uh, largest amount of weight that a donkey can, can hold on their shoulders. It is between about 30 and 50 pounds. Everyone understands pounds. And to give you an, an idea of how much Ruth walked away from the field with, in Babylonian times, it was common for a full-grown male to gather about one to two pounds of wheat or barley, or whatever it is. I want you to imagine this, a pack the size of dog food on her shoulders. It does say that Ruth walked away. She's a tough girl. She walks away. Imagine Naomi's response, okay? Imagine Naomi's response as Ruth walks down the, the, the road to her house with 50 pounds of barley on her shoulders. This is about a half month's wages. Naomi sees Ruth coming. You have to put yourself in Naomi's shoes just for a few seconds. She's probably thinking at this point, well, hope she has some luck. I hope she can find a field where they allow her to pick, and I hope she gets enough that they're not too, uh, too cruel to her. Hopefully she gets enough that we can kind of, you know, uh, get through the rest of the day, and maybe we'll find another field to, to glean on. Maybe someone will show us mercy. Ruth rolls up with a 50-pound bag of barley on her shoulders. And it's not just that. Notice that he brings her to the table, offers her roasted grain. And she eats so much that she actually has a little bit left over. And so she brings that extra with her. There's a, any of you been to Lily's Tacos? Just a, uh, yeah, of course you have. I love Lily's Tacos. <laughs> much like many of you do. Not just because it is really, really good food, but because it's, it's not like $20 food, you know what I'm saying? Like you don't have to pay, like anywhere else you go, like I would like some sweet potato fries. Okay, $15, right? <laughs> Lily's Tacos, buck seventy-five a taco. You know what I do? I'll roll in there and I'll get half of what I actually need. So if I'm super hungry, I might get like three tacos. But... Because they give me two tortillas per taco, I'll actually split the tacos and disperse the meat between tacos. So I'll end up with six tacos. And then to make up the difference, right, free salsa bar, I'll start hoarding on that little onion cilantro mix or cabbage or whatever it is. And often at these taco bars, I hope I'm not just totally making them upset right now, but they'll sometimes throw in like some roasted onions. So roasted onions, cilantro, some uh, regular onions, the salsa, all of this stuff. By the time I'm done, I have an entire plate full of goodness that I only spent like six bucks for, right? So Ruth rolls up on the scene. You have to, I just want you to picture Naomi right now. She's just, just pacing, right? Just pacing. Hope she gets a bite. Hope I get a little. Hope we can get through the day. 
Naomi just struggling to the door with 50 pounds of wheat. Naomi's jaw drops to the floor. And then Ruth goes so far as to say, oh, and I got some Lily's tacos for you. I had so much that I didn't know what to do with it, so I put a taco in my pocket, and here you go. And to make matters even more, even more incredible, she then goes, like, Naomi is just, is just impressed beyond all measure. She's, her response is, where did you go? Who is this kind individual? She doesn't even let her answer the question. God bless whoever this person is because he is awesome. What an angel. Where did you go? And just like a master storyteller, the author of Ruth keeps the name to the end, just drawing you towards that final, towards that final curtain. And Ruth describes, well, I went to this field and that place working with these workers by a guy by the name of Boaz. And Naomi, who knows all about how things worked, must have dropped to the floor. Because her response is, oh my gosh, as she's eating the tacos, and she's looking at 50 pounds of barley on her shoulders, and she says, wait, we're related to him. You telling me you happen to end up in somebody's field who belongs to our, 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 our clan, and he is this generous, and his favor is towards you? Ruth, that's one of our redeemers. A redeemer was someone who had a particular obligation to other people outside of the family but in the clan. We'll talk about that more next week. But Naomi's jaw must have dropped to the floor when she heard all of this. And look at how her outlook changed. In the first chapter, she was destitute, blaming God, saying, this is so unjust. God is bitter towards me. God hates me. God isn't looking for me. Ruth, why would you go after my God? Look at what he does to me. You should actually go to Moab's God, uh, uh, Chemosh. Like, that is better. An Israelite woman. Like, go to the other false gods, because they're going to do you right. And in, a, uh, in the duration of a chapter, she's praising God for his kindness to the destitute. God does hear the cry of the poor. He does hear the cry of the destitute. He does hear the cry of the needy, and he still does today. And in this situation, I want your eyes to become glued on this character, this mysterious character named Boaz, who doesn't just believe what the Torah told him was true, but he actually lives accordingly. He doesn't say, I believe God loves the poor, and ain't that great. He actually lives like that is a true thing. This isn't just generosity. Generosity was Leviticus chapter 19, nine through 10, where God said, hey, when you're gleaning the fields and you have some left over, make sure to leave it on the ground so the poor could pick it up. Boaz actually goes beyond the requirements of the law and tells his workers, hey, you guys, uh, I want you to do that, but also I want to take some of the things that you picked and just scatter them, you know, like confetti. Happy uh, Viva La Fiesta. Just like throw it on the ground and make sure that she gets it and don't throw a fit. This was more than a handout. In all that occurs before our very eyes, the stigma of being a Moabite, a foreigner, is lifted from her shoulders. In place of that on her shoulders is a 50-pound bag of barley. Protection was given. She was empowered, validated, given a sense of belonging. This is chesed, love of God. Boaz is simply modeling for us what God is like 
to people who cry out for him. The point of this chapter is that God's love for the poor is important, it's paramount, it is generous, it is far-reaching. And what this means for us is that since God loves and is concerned with the poor, then God's people must likewise be concerned with the poor, with the immigrant, with the outcast, with the widow, with the orphan, whatever it is that you want to describe or call it. If I were to be honest with myself, because we all do have a tendency of reading heartfelt stories like this and putting us in the shoes of the most heroic person, right? You read David and Goliath, and who do you imagine yourself to be? David. (laughs) When we're really probably more like the people of Israel who are doubting God. When we see Jesus battling the Pharisees, we, we, we put ourselves in the experience of Jesus, saying, yeah, Jesus, go get him. When maybe we're more like the Pharisees than we would like to admit. Perhaps we read Ruth. If you're a dude, you're like, I'm Boaz, bro. And if, you're, and if you're a woman, maybe you're like, I'm Ruth, and all the Boazes are after me right now. <laughs> Look, maybe you are. Maybe you're amazing. <laughs> but if I'm honest with myself, I find myself, throughout the duration of my life, more like the field workers than anyone else in the story. Why did Boaz have to tell them, hey, leave her alone? Leave the Moabitess alone. It's possible that it's because that was the common way of treating poor immigrants and widows. Perhaps he had to say that because if he didn't, they would look down on her. They would try to keep everything for themselves. Maybe they would even go so far as the Israelites that they are to give her a little bit or uh, just uh, let her be present in the field, but with a sense of uh, condescension. You can be here, but you need me. Perhaps deep down they were thinking, "The the poor don't deserve our help. They got there in the first place. They should pull themselves up by the bootstraps. This ain't my problem. I worked hard for this. I belong to Israel. I was born into the right family. I observed the Torah. I worked hard to get where I'm at. Forget all of those people mooching off of me, blaming them, looking down on them, stealing their dignity, robbing them of their worth. When the tone and tenor of the Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation actually is, and most loudly to the people of God, hey, don't forget You were foreigners too. In fact, after Israel is pulled out of bondage and slavery to Egypt and brought through the Red Sea, you see this pattern over and over and over all throughout the Old Testament. Remember when I delivered you from slavery. Remember when you were slaves and I rescued from torment. Why does God do that? Why does he keep repeating the same things that he does? Why does he keep referring back to something that happened in the past? Because we forget that we're foreigners too. We were foreigners. 
We keep forgetting that we ourselves had to be rescued. We, like Ruth, have to come to a place where we are able to say to the living God, hey, we were not your servants and yet you took notice of us. We were the Moabite foreigners. We were the poor. We had nothing to give to you. We had nothing to give to you in return and yet you shower barley on us. 50 pounds of your loving kindness and beauty. Why? I'm not even one of your servants. Ruth takes the, uh, basically the lowest rung on, uh, in the economical ladder, a servant, and compares her to that and says, I'm not even fit to be one of your servant girls, and yet you're kind to me. Isn't that a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ to us today? God's has said can be defined even deep, more deeply as his generosity to people who cannot return the favor. In fact, Paul would say later in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8 through 9, I say this not as a command. What does he say? Well, in that entire chapter, he's speaking about giving generously to people who are in need. And he says, I tell you this not as a command. In other words, I'm not, I'm not trying to get on your case and force you to give to needy people. But to prove, I love how Paul, just his little, it seems like he's not commanding you, but he is, right? Saying, I'm not saying that, like, you don't have to, okay, guys? I'm not saying this is a command. But to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Okay, <laughs> Paul. I'm not saying you have to, but if your love is real, you probably should. That's what he's saying. (laughs) I'm not saying you got to give to the poor, but if you're a Christian, yeah. And then he grounds it in this. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Paul says, you don't have to, but you do, if you've ever tasted of the grace of God. The God who became impoverished so that you might be rich. If that really sank into your heart as it's supposed to, your heart will overflow with love and care and concern for the least of these. Ruth chapter two is about God's love and concern for the poor. If we confess Christ as Lord and do not care about the things that he cares about the most, we have reason to question whether we really know him. Of all the things that God talks about as being important in the Bible, it's really hard to get around this one. I'm not saying that as soon as church is over, you should appease your own guilt and give cash to the nearest panhandler. That actually involves a deeper discussion about what it means to alleviate poverty and whether such an action is an effective form of alleviating poverty. Maybe someday we'll talk about that. I don't even want to get to that point right now. I just want our hearts to be burdened with the burden of Christ. That might not be the best situation, but before you begin to feel relief, you're like, okay, I can just keep ignoring people when I see them on the street. Consider this. Real alleviation of poverty in our city is going to require a people of God 
who take seriously God's heart for the poor, who are willing to suffer inconvenience, sacrifice time, develop and invest in relationships with the poor, to meet the impoverished where they're at, as uncomfortable as it may be, and to commit themselves to helping in meaningful, long-lasting, yet costly ways. Before the relief comes, you ought to see exactly what the call of God on your life is gonna cost you. You say, well, I don't wanna do that. I'd rather just show up on Sunday, sing some songs, listen to that brown guy make a fool of himself, get a laugh before I go to Lily's Tacos. And if you do that today, you will be joining thousands of other people who are doing the same. And I believe that God has a deeper purpose and calling on this church than that. I believe that when Jesus came in on the scene and he quoted Isaiah saying, I have come with a special anointing to break the yoke and to redeem the poor and to feed the hungry and I'm calling a group of hoodlums like this to come with me. I really feel like he was giving us something to dream. Guys, we live in Santa Barbara and there are millions Millions upon millions upon millions of dollars represented in this room alone. I'm not even going up to APS or Montecito right now. Just this room. Millions upon millions of dollars. And over two-thirds of the world is forced to live on less than a dollar a day, two dollars a day. Some of those live in our neighborhood. And the point of this is not to heap guilt upon people who have a lot. And by the way, that's not just billionaires, that's most people in this room. You might say, well, I eat top ramen every day. A lot of people don't. They say, well, I can barely pay my bills. But you have a house, right? So before we kind of categorize us into millionaires and billionaires and the rest of us, before we kind of think, well, I can, you know, I couldn't afford that uh, Bugatti Veyron. You know, I've got my lame old Honda Pilot that I have to drive on the way to Westmont, you know. <laughs> Let's just humbly put all of ourselves into the same bucket, right? And just consider. When Jesus... This uh, apostle says in 1 John chapter 3, John 16 and 18, he says, hey, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth like Boaz. In other words, I'm not, the Bible isn't putting a guilt trip on you for making a killing or being successful. It might do the same for being lazy. It actually praises people for being successful, for putting their hands to the plow and working hard. But it also puts upon those people a tremendous responsibility. Not to spend everything upon themselves, which Santa Barbara loves to tell you to do. It says, leave a little wheat in the field. 
And we see this pattern all throughout the scriptures. Not just a call to love and care for the poor, but also stern warnings for people who venture to claim God as their own, yet live disconnected from the lives of the poor. You may say, well, I don't need to do that. I am fervent in prayer. But Isaiah chapter 58 verse six says, hey, is this not the kind of prayer and fasting I have chosen? To loosen the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? You may say, well, you know, some people have the gift of generosity and giving to the poor, but not me. I have the gift of worshiping and, you know, community and relationship and I'm all about that. But Isaiah chapter one, verse 12 through 17 says, when you come before me, speaking to the people of God, who has asked you this, of, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, festivals, barbecues, worship music, prayer, fasting. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Oh my gosh. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. This is God speaking. This is crazy. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. This is really scary. I never want God to speak this way to me, but he probably has. Why this? Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil do- deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Israel didn't do that, and God was disgusted with their sacrifices. Said, what is that worth it to me if your hands are raised and your mouth is jabber-jawing in prayer, if you don't love the people that I love? Pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father, James says, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. God takes treatment of the poor very seriously. And I would say he takes it very personally. What you do to the poor, whether good or bad, he considers it being done to him. Jesus actually says something just like that in the Gospels. But he also says, that you see this picture in the Old Testament and New. Do you know what the reason was for Israel's exile into Babylon? You might say, well, because of idols and a lack of prayer and a lack of worship. And yet Zechariah, listen to what Zechariah says in chapter 7, verse 10 through 14. Don't oppress the widow. I told you guys that. Don't oppress the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder. He goes on to say, Therefore great anger came from the Lord of the hosts. As I called, they would not hear. So they called and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Exile because Israel forgot to love the poor. Do we think God has changed? And yet, on the opposite end of that spectrum, we see tremendous blessing coming from God to God's people who consider the poor. Proverbs 19, verse 17 says, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and he will reward them for what they have done. 
when Isaiah speaks of that fast, this is the fast that I've chosen, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke, to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, to, uh, when you see the naked, to cover them, and so on and so forth. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You just can't read the Bible and miss God's tremendous love for the poor as being close to the center. Jesus would come upon, uh, upon the scene later and in Luke chapter 4, 18 say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me in a special way. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And God loves everybody, rich and poor alike. But that theme of that upside down kingdom that we saw in the Beatitudes so vividly is that God especially likes to show up among the people that are least likely to get it. You may say, I, I believe all of that, but I don't know where to start. And poverty is a very complex issue. And have to leave some of that stuff for another time. But here's a, here's a starting place for us. We can start with a deep, mind-blowing understanding that we are loved by God even though we had nothing to give back to him. Isn't that true? And if that really attacks us in the deep part of our heart, we, can, we ought to start from a place of repentance saying, God, I see how much you've loved me even though I haven't been able to give anything in return to you. By grace I have been saved, not by my works, but by the, by the gift of God. And it should cause our eyes to look upon people around us who have nothing and say, how can I manifest the chesed love of God to people around me who can barely get by? If you want an easy place to start, look at what Boaz does in verse five. It starts right here. Whose young woman is this? Notice that he doesn't say, who are you? Or what woman is this? He says, whose woman is this? In other words, he's trying to find what tribe she belongs to. He doesn't recognize her and she, he realizes this is a Moabite. What is she doing here? The way this is worded alludes to Boaz's awareness that this woman is out of place. He starts by noticing a person out of place. Naomi's response, blessed be the man who took notice of you. And Naomi attributes all of this to the Lord's kindness in verse 20. People have to see God's chesed love through our actions of chesed love or they might never know it. Jesus actually doesn't just notice the poor, he loves them. And he said that they are the ones that are truly blessed, Beatitudes, they will see the kingdom of God. That any salvation that comes to people that are affluent is actually a sheer miracle. Remember when the disciples are like, hey, if the rich man can't, uh, uh, if it's easier for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle than get into heaven, who can be saved? It's impossible. Jesus says, yeah, it is. But with God, all things are, 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 are possible. God can save anybody. 
But James says that God has chosen the poor in this world to be the rich, the rich in faith. If there's anything we could do today, this morning, to heed the words of Christ in the book of Ruth, can we just pray? Can we just spend this time singing about God's covenant love and just pray? If there's nothing else, if there's no other foot to get started on, can we just pray and say, God, I don't even know where to start. Seems so overwhelming. I don't even know what to do. Maybe I don't even want to do that, but I see that that's your heart. God, give me your heart. Perhaps we can just start there this morning. God, can you give me your heart? To pray for that type of humility that we're to receive, to pray for God's chesed love, to pray to, for eyes to see the hurting around us and in our midst. And most of all, to remember that we were hurting too and perhaps we still are. And God was kind to us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, come before you this morning on the heels of one of the biggest parties that Santa Barbara experiences. And God, we're just, you know, we're so thankful that you are an extravagant God and that you celebrate and you party too that you rejoice and that you give us the ability, as the Proverbs say, to make wealth. You don't just call us to work, but that you give us dignity. You call us to steward our gifts and our talents, to further your kingdom, even, and to show your glory. God, perhaps some of us have done all of those things, yet have lived in a bubble this entire time. Maybe we've never thought about people around us who have needs. Maybe some of us are feeling guilty or shamed. I pray, God, that you would remove unhealthy guilt and get to the depths of our heart to show us how much you have loved us. When we were sinners, you died for us. But God, I also pray that we wouldn't stay there. Please, Lord, keep us from that tendency. North American Christians to come to worship services and sing and be thankful and be, uh, uh, to have gratitude and be excited and God saved us and yay, just to go back out and get sucked into the same consumerism and materialistic desires and idolatry that the world has been selling us this entire time. God, we believe that you are making all things new and that your resurrection from the dead proves that you are on a journey to get that happening. God, we don't wanna be spectators. We want to see your kingdom manifested in this city, and we wanna see it happening from the ground up. Believing that your heart throbs for the poor, for the widow, for the immigrant, for the hurting, for the restless, for the tired. We'd really like, Holy Spirit, for you to give us the same heart. So as we sing today, restore the joy of our salvation and bring us into the swell of your kingdom. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.